Come, Holy Spirit. Come to open your word. And come to open our hearts to your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Our Bible has a whole cast of wonderful and unforgettable characters. And uh, I think at close to the very top of that list has to be John the Baptist. He rejects all the privileges of his family's priestly heritage, and he goes out into the wilderness where he wears only rough clothes made of camel's hair, and he subsists on a diet of wild honey and locusts. And you know, this morning I had the strange thought, what part of the locusts was he actually eating? Maybe we have some entomologists who can tell us. Now, dear John may eat sweet honey, but he's certainly no sweet talker. His mission, he says, is to prepare a people ready, ready for the coming of the Lord. And he does so with preaching that is often fierce and scorching. He calls Jerusalem's religious elite a brood of vipers. And he calls the wealthy in his day to share God's special concern for the poor. If you've got two coats, then share one of them. And every day when John the Baptist goes on Facebook and sees the question, what's on your mind? He posts the same nine-word status update. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. Again and again and again. And as we saw last week, John's preaching is so fiery that many gladly leap right into the Jordan to be baptized, like deer escaping a forest fire. And yet, amidst all of John's fire and brimstone, I want us to notice something very, very important. That John is advancing one of the Bible's central and unfolding stories amidst all of the fire and brimstone. And the story is, that God desires to be in loving relationship with all people and not just some. You see, John baptizes many folks who were previously cut off from God, who had no access to God. People like tax collectors, people like prostitutes and soldiers, And dear friends, consider this. This is not my insight. This comes from Walter Wink. Consider this. Unlike Jewish circumcision, which was limited to whom? Men. Yeah, raise your hand over there. Baptism by John 
now opens up conversion to the other whole half of the human race. Who? Women. Wow. In the end, it's John's habit of withering truthfulness. Calling a scorpion a scorpion. That finally lands him in prison and eventually costs him his head. One day, the wicked King Herod Herod of Antipas turns his lustful eye on his brother's own wife named Herodias and takes her for himself. You can't do that, John tells him. Oh, yes, I can, Herod says, and locks John right up. If you find it helpful this morning, I invite you to follow along in your Bible and to turn to our reading from Matthew 11 because we're going to be based in that passage today. Matthew 11. At the start of this reading, as Dirk helped us to see, we learn that John the Baptist is in prison. And from another historian of the day named Josephus, we know that the baptizer is now locked up in a fortress dungeon high atop a desolate mountain on the far side of the Dead Sea. And it's there that John now starts having his doubts about Jesus. Now, sure, he once felt so sure about Jesus that Jesus was the Messiah that he shouted, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and then baptized him. But in verse 2, we learn that John is now troubled by all that he hears that the Messiah is doing. And little wonder, just think about this. John comes preaching about God's judgment and Jesus mostly about God's mercy. John's God is a steely-eyed thresher of grain. And Jesus' God is like a father, like an Abba, who patiently waits for lost children finally to come home from that far country. John comes fasting and Jesus comes feasting. John never touches a drop of wine and let's just say that after Jesus shows up at a certain wedding in Cana, everybody has 180 more gallons of it. And if you look in your Bible, chapter 11, verse 19, what does this lead some people to call Jesus? A glutton and a drunkard. And you have to wonder if languishing in prison, John is also troubled by all that Jesus is not just doing, but not doing. 
After all, when is Jesus going to start swinging that axe to all the dead trees and throw them in the unquenchable fire, as we heard last week? When is he finally going to bring vengeance and payback, as promised by Isaiah, to their brutal occupiers? And when is he going to bring release to the captives? Which, by the way, includes himself. Jesus clearly isn't the kind of Messiah that John expects. And so, in verse 3, a troubled John sends envoys, emissaries, to ask Jesus the question that weighs on his heart and I believe often weighs on our hearts still today. Are you the one who is to come or not? Are you the one? And Jesus then answers by saying that all the transformation promised by the prophet Isaiah is now being fulfilled in him. Go tell John that the blind here have all taken up bird watching. The lame are out hiking in the hills. The lepers now have skin softer than a baby's bottom. And the dead have formed a choir to sing God's praises. And above all, go tell my dear cousin, go tell my dear cousin, That the poor are having the good news of God's loving concern delivered right to their doorsteps. Go tell John that. But then in verse 6, Jesus seems to recognize how hard it is going to be for John to accept all of this. And so he says, blessed are they who take no offense in me. And I wonder for us 2,000 years later, is the offense in the content of his words? Or is the hardest part for us to accept is the hardest part that huge gap that we feel between what Jesus and Isaiah describe and the world and the realities that we actually live in. Isn't that what is hardest for us to accept when we hear these readings? Don't we all, as Marcus said in our prayer of confession, know about blind people who've never been able to see? Don't we know about folks who have spent their whole lives in wheelchairs, like my brother, and who never were able to leap like a deer? Don't we all know about broken relationships that have never been mended? about prayers for healing that haven't been answered as we prayed? 
about dreams that haven't just gone unfulfilled, but have been shattered instead? And if we're really honest, don't we all know that even our own transformation is only partial and still so incomplete? Amen? I think it's this same tragic gap between these beautiful realities held up for us by Jesus and Isaiah and the world in which we live that also causes us sometimes to come home from our community meals or a night spent at the winter shelter and just to weep. You ever done that? What are we to do with all these stories that we hear about kids without food, homes without heat, the sick without medical care, and people, so many people with so little experience of ever being loved well? When will all this sorrow and sighing as promised in Isaiah 35, finally be set to flight? When will all of this promised joy and gladness finally roll into town? I think our passage from James this morning is very intentionally paired with our ecstatically hopeful readings from Isaiah and Matthew to remind us of the need for patience. Be patient, beloved, until the coming of the Lord. As surely as the rains will come every year, so will Christ surely return to set right all that is broken and unjust and polluted in our world. I invite you to take a look at the diagram in your bulletin drawn from a book by Nelson Crable, our own Elvin's brother. And Elvin, I couldn't remember, is he your younger or older brother? He's a little brother, but he's bigger than me. <laughs> I'll let him know you said that. Here you can see that we live right at the X. I don't know if you didn't copy real clearly. You can take a pen and just highlight that X. That is where we live, pulled between two overlapping ages. On the left side, the powers of violence and greed still pull us backward toward the age that has already been defeated. The empires of that rebellious age, Babylonian, Roman, or American, all clamor for our allegiance, but they have no future. They are all history. On the right side of that diagram, we see the kingdom of God that Jesus has inaugurated, pulling us forward. Feel the pull. 
The kingdom, this kingdom, is already here, but is not yet here in all of its fullness. But friends of this kingdom, God's empire of love, there shall be no end. Though the arc of our moral universe is long, it bends inexorably toward God's reign of shalom. And Scripture tells us again and again and again, since we don't get it, even this preacher doesn't get it, that though we may feel torn between these ages, feel pulled apart by these two ages, there's no question about where history is heading. The night is far gone, Romans 13.12 says, but the day is near. The darkness is passing away, 1 John 1.8 says, but the true light is already shining. And Isaiah's vivid images today of streams flowing and crocuses blooming in the desert. You know, Edna this week helped me to notice that our cactus right in the middle of winter, is blooming right before our eyes. I hadn't noticed. All these things remind us of God's promise, sure promise to set right all that is broken and unjust in our world. And God has invited us to participate in the keeping of this promise. Our job is not to make God's kingdom come. Our job is to join what God is already doing in our world. Patiently bringing hope to the hopeless. Love to the loveless. And light to those living in darkness. And so, this Advent... At the very darkest time of the year, we are again celebrating the coming of God's light into our world. A light that no darkness could ever overcome. And we are remembering God's precious gift of Jesus and with his birth, the dawning of God's new age of love and shalom and justice. And so now, as we light our third Advent candle, let us remember again that the night is far gone and the day is near. Amen.